0: Okay, Today's reading is Luke chapter 3 that I hope you have already read and if you have you know that in this chapter we encounter again the preaching of John the Baptist. We've already thought a great deal about him in both Matthew and Mark but here we have uh, his preaching again here in Luke and also we have Luke's account of Jesus' baptism which is uh, interesting in the way that Luke talks about it and describes it and we see Luke's record of Jesus' genealogy, which we already came across in the very first chapter of Matthew. Um, But there are some interesting and noteworthy aspects of the chapter, so let's think about some things we find here. And the first, uh, which is not surprising as we come across the teaching of John the Baptist, let's think about bearing fruit. So the chapter opens with the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist. And he came, as it says in verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of uh, forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins. And he came commanding in verse 8 that everyone bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it's interesting that as soon as he issues this command, he gives two reasons why this command applies to everyone. First, he anticipates a reply from many that were listening to him. They heard him announcing the need for repentance and forgiveness, and he knows that they would have argued back that they were descendants of Abraham, uh, verse 8, and therefore would have assumed they already had the favor of God upon them, and thus they did not have need uh, for repentance and forgiveness. John anticipates this and says that before even they begin to say these things to themselves. They need to realize that while a person may be a physical child of Abraham by physical descent, no one is a spiritual child of Abraham on any other basis than repentance and faith. No matter our spiritual heritage, our obligation is personal repentance and faith, which can be seen by others if it is genuine because fruits in keeping with it will inevitably follow. Repentance and faith are real, not just ritual. They produce observable change in a person. The faith of your fathers can't produce that change in you. The Holy Spirit produces that change in you through your personal repentance and faith. But second, John adds one more reason why his command of repentance applies to everyone, and that that is the judgment. John gives stark imagery to make this point. In verse 9, he gives the picture of the axe of God being laid to the root of the tree, ready to chop it down in judgment. Also, in verse 16, in describing Jesus the Messiah, who was about to burst on the scene, he describes the Lord with, quote, a winnowing fork in his hand. The Lord would separate the true and good wheat, that is, the repentant and believing, from the chaff, those remaining stubbornly in their sins. We still today need to be reminded of these warnings, but... How is repentance and faith effective for the forgiveness of our sins? Does God just sweep our sins under the rug uh, just because we say we're sorry? No. God in his grace has provided us with a great high priest uh, to, to cover our sins so that when we come to him in repentance and faith, our sins are fully paid for and he can justly forgive us. Well, who is this great high priest? Well, that is the other theme of this chapter. Jesus is our great high priest, and we see some clues of that in his baptism. Luke has a somewhat briefer account of Jesus' baptism than Matthew does, but Luke's account is just as interesting and significant. To recall Matthew's account, Matthew tells us that when John the Baptist protested against baptizing Jesus. Jesus told him he needed to be baptized because he needed to fulfill all righteousness. That's Matthew 3:15, And a lot of people have puzzled over what exactly Jesus meant by that. And I believe Luke gives us a clue, another clue to that in his account. I believe a clue is given when Luke specifically and intentionally tells us that Jesus in verse 23, quote, was about 30 years of age when he was baptized and began his ministry. Why is this so significant? Is it, I think it's likely, at least possible, that the original readers of Luke's gospel would have, would have made a connection between Jesus' baptism at 30 years old and the initiation of priests in the Old Testament. When the law of Moses laid out the requirements for the Levites, as they were initiated into the priesthood. Among other things, it says that they were to be at least 30 years old. Uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 4, verse 47, says, quote, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come to do the service of ministry and the service of bearing burdens for the tent of meeting. See, And you see all that in, in Numbers, chapter 4, verse 3. So the minimum age was 30 to enter the priesthood. This is the first similarity with Jesus. Furthermore, as the uh, Old Testament priest was being initiated into service, he not only had to be at least 30 years old, but he also had to go undergo a ceremonial washing. So we read in, in the book of Numbers chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, it says, "...take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves." And it appears this is the second similarity with Jesus. When Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, he, he told him it was to fulfill all righteousness, and it is at least possible that these Old Testament passages are what he had in mind. Jesus was baptized by John, not as a baptism of repentance like everyone else. Uh, he had no sins of which to repent. So why did Jesus come to be baptized? Well, it appears, based on Old Testament passages that we've just looked at, That Jesus was baptized, that is washed, at about 30 years of age as a fulfillment of the law requirements of entrance into the priesthood. Jesus is our great high priest. You see more about that in Hebrews chapter 9. He alone is the one who can fully and finally bring us to God and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, something that the Old Testament priests could never do. But also we see something interesting in This chapter, and that is, has to do with Jesus as a new Adam. Jesus as a new Adam. Uh, One thing you should always keep in mind as you read the Gospels is that they are not like our modern day biographies, whose sole purpose is to strictly convey the information to us about a person's life. With our four Gospels, information is certainly conveyed about Jesus' life and ministry, but each Gospel writer has a deeper purpose. Than simply the transference of information. They have a theological purpose behind everything that they write, even, if not especially, in writing a genealogy. And I believe we have a clear example of that here with Jesus I mean, excuse me, with Luke's uh, genealogy of Jesus. Again, the last time we came across a genealogy of Jesus was in the very first chapter of the New Testament in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter one. Both genealogies, Matthew's and Luke's, trace Jesus' genealogy through the line of Joseph. However, perhaps the main difference between them is how far back they go. If you turned back to Matthew chapter 1, you'll notice that Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham. Uh, Matthew had a reason for this. He wanted to emphasize um, somewhat, as we have seen Luke did, that Jesus came as a fulfillment to God's covenant promises to Abraham and David also. But if you're looking again at this Luke uh, this account in Luke, he traces the gene- genealogy of Jesus farther back than Abraham, all the way back to Adam. That's in the very last verse of the chapter. This difference shows that Luke had has a different purpose in mind for the genealogy than Matthew did. As as we've studied the first two chapters of Luke already we saw in chapter 1 an emphasis on Jesus fulfilling the covenant with Abraham. In chapter 2 we saw an emphasis on Jesus fulfilling the covenants with David and Moses. In Luke, I believe, here in the third chapter, is he's carrying on that same emphasis of showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the major figures in the Old Testament. This time the figure is Adam. And we'll see more of this tomorrow as we read and think about chapter 4. But I believe Luke introduces Adam here at the end of chapter 3 to remind us of the disobedience and failure of the old Adam, see Genesis 3, in order to highlight Jesus as a kind of new Adam who obeys and succeeds uh, as he is tempted by Satan in the next chapter. And if you want to see this uh, comparison between Jesus and Adam fleshed out more in the New Testament, read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And also see 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five. 45. Uh, I continue to be amazed at the richness of these early chapters of Luke's gospel. It's really, truly breathtaking to see all the ways in which Jesus is our triumphant Savior and Lord. And that's Luke chapter 3.